hailing from Edmond, Oklahoma. You know him as one of the original Ruby Rogues. Author of such popular gems as Highline and Faster CSV, totaling nearly 40 million downloads. Please put your hands together for James Edward Gray the second. All right, welcome to the Ruby Steps podcast. I am joined by James Edward Gray the second. James, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really, really appreciate it. Wait, I'm in the wrong podcast. <laughs> I know you're defecting, right? And now you're you're like doubly roguing it up. You're the Ruby Rogue Rogue. <laughs> <laughs> So why don't you uh, start off, could you tell me a little bit about how you got into programming and Ruby specifically? Because I know you have some, some cool stories there. I've heard some of them on the podcast, on the Ruby Steps, on the Ruby Rogues podcast. But <laughs> I'd like to, to kind of hear a, kind of a condensed version of the programming history of James Edward Gray II. Okay, uh, James Edward Gray II, the early years. Let's see, uh, I was always kind of into programming as a kid. I had a ColecoVision Atom, which is a computer pretty much nobody's ever heard of. Never uh, heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it didn't do much of anything, but it uh, programmed in BASIC, and it came with this, like, thousand-page manual that taught you BASIC. Uh, and I must have read that book like 17 times, and, and I was young and, and totally inexperienced, and I could only understand maybe a third of it. But um, I you know, got to the point where I could do some basic things and, and stuff. Um, and then I, I was lucky I went to a high school uh, that had a programming class. Uh, they taught Pascal. And um, we also had to have uh, fancy calculators for our... Um, uh, for upper level math classes there, TI-85s and stuff. And uh, they programmed in the HP calculators. We had two, which were the uh, reverse Polish notation calculators. Super fun to mess with if you haven't played with one of those. Um, and uh, so I, I did that all through, um, all through everything. And then eventually got into Java and got Java certified and, then got tired of Java and went to Perl and did a lot of Perl for a long time. And then Ruby uh, is kind of just a big accident. Um, I was uh, freshly off of a job one summer and just kind of taking it easy. So I was playing with Ruby in my spare time and just uh, tinkering around. And that was the summer before uh, Rails 1 was released. Uh, and that was truly a golden age in Ruby's history um, because there was only one mailing list at that point. Everybody was on it. You know, Dave Thomas and Ava Howard, Avdi Grimm, um, uh, DHH, you know, they were all on this one place. And we all traded emails together. Jim Wyrick, so many people. And so we just talked all day long and we were playing with the language and having fun and then rails hits and gets super popular and overnight people that have ruby knowledge are suddenly in high demand you know so something i was just kind of tinkering around with and having fun with uh was suddenly very valuable to everyone so that's pretty much uh it, it was a happy accident basically that's interesting. I, that kind of mirrors the experience that I've heard with a lot of other Rubyists that they 
they got into Ruby like right before Rails came out, not knowing that Rails was coming out, or maybe they kind of saw some of DHH's blogs and stuff because I know that he had it like private, had private versions and was kind of talking about it before actually releasing it. Right. Um, so people were getting into it, but no, I don't think anybody knew that it was going to explode the way that it did. And so yeah, for got- the people that got into it, that were tinkering out with Ruby, like you said, all of a sudden, there's this super hot new job market for them. Yeah, that was an interesting time because uh, Rails just kind of exploded and suddenly everyone wanted, you know, Ruby programmers, which was a relatively, you know, obscure language back then, you know, and not a lot of people knew it. And then there were some of us that knew it pretty well, you know, and and even in the beginning, I can remember as I would get Rails jobs uh, early on, it was like, do you know Rails? And it's like, no, you know, but I can make Ruby do anything, you know, so who cares? <laughs> That's great. So what uh so how does that apply today? Because Rails has gotten so much more mature and a lot bigger, and there are so many kind of different pieces and little mini frameworks that are going in. I think there's a lot more Rails specific knowledge that that you need but how does how does a knowledge how i like i love what you said that i can make ruby do anything so how does an effective knowledge of ruby apply to rails today like is it important to to know ruby really well or can you just can you get by on knowing rails specific stuff without a very solid grasp of the ruby programming language I think that's a really good question. I think it's actually kind of a complicated thing. I'm going to take it in two parts. The first thing you said was that Rails has gotten bigger and there's a lot more moving parts and, and stuff. And, and in many ways, it's more mature and uh, things like that, which I think all of that's true. Um, I, on the flip side, though, I kind of envy uh, people like me who got to come into Rails uh, I really started picking it up, I think, around the uh, right around the time Rails transitioned from 1.1 to 1.2. I, I sat down and pretty much figured it, it, it all out, read most of the code, I think, and, and started playing with it in detail. And um, that, uh, that was an easier time to get into Rails, in my opinion, because uh, the framework didn't do as much for you back then. And there was, uh, you know, it was easier to understand what was going on. I mean, Rails has always had its level of magic, um, but there's a very different level of magic between like some simple routes that map to controller methods and then, uh, you know, the stuff that Active Record does, which has remained fairly constant over the years. Active Record hasn't changed that drastically since the beginning. But some of the other layers, like when resource routing came in, boy, that was a whole level of, of learning that, you know, you had to add on there. And the asset pipeline, when that came in, then that's, you know, a whole nother stack and lots of complications getting into things like Turbolinks and things like that uh, of today. So uh, in my opinion, uh, I, I don't envy people that have to learn it nowadays because I think it's a bigger mountain to climb. At least I was able to take it in uh, small chunks, you know, and pick up the basics and then add on resource routing when it got here and add on asset management when it got here. So that uh, that's one thing. I think Rails is harder to just ease into these days. And it was easier back when I did it. 
the other thing you said was um, how does uh, knowing Ruby, you know, help in Rails? And I have to say, I think it's amazingly important uh, and and super super valuable. If you want a secret skill in Rails development, I would tell you to go back and learn Ruby, like really learn it, um, because. Rails is just Ruby. It sits on top of Ruby and, and yeah, there's a lot going on in Rails. It's handling a lot of things for you. But if you have a good knowledge of the language underneath it, you can do, as I said, make Ruby do anything. And because Rails is just Ruby, you can make Rails do anything. And I think people really underestimate the value of that. Uh, early on when I was getting Rails jobs, I used to tell people I was probably the worst Rails developer in the world <laughs> because I didn't know any of the plugins off the top of my head. I didn't, I, I would, didn't go up in that culture, you know, and so I didn't have all those things memorized. I didn't know what the go-to tools were, but that really didn't matter because I knew how to use Ruby. So whenever I needed something, I invented whatever piece I needed in Ruby and used that. I, which there are obviously pluses and minuses to that. I'm not saying that's the best idea ever. If you need to do some pagination, you should probably use Will Paginate or whatever. But um, but being able to do that, not being stuck when you don't know what the plug uh, plugin is or what tool you have to add on or whatever, that is worth a lot, right? Even if you later go back and replace it with some standard thing. So. I find it very empowering. I teach people Ruby and Rails pretty regularly, and I still do it from the bottom up, starting at Ruby and come up and then get to Rails. And I think what you find when you do it that way is you know, the, the first step, teaching someone Ruby, that's hard, and it takes a long time and a lot of work. But once you're over that hump and uh, you know have working knowledges of databases and stuff like that, then Rails is just kind of a layer you add on on top of it. And it's not near as hard as I think it would be to dive in from the top and work your way down. I really, really like how you tied those two pieces together because I think you're right. I, I was in the early days of Rails too and experienced that same sort of progression that you did of like, hey, it handles HTTP requests and stuff to the database cool and then it started adding more and more pieces and so rails today is kind of a distillation of about 10 years almost 10 years of understanding of how to build web applications and a lot has changed in that time and so for somebody approaching it for the first time they have a lot of catching up to do and they don't have the the kind of experience of of building things before certain features existed and why you would want to use those. And so it there is so much to tackle and it can be overwhelming. But that's, with a, this that's a great point. And I think uh, you can kind of notice this if you look at like code school curriculums and stuff. From what I've seen, they often teach some, some Ruby skills and then they move not to Rails, but to Sinatra. And the reason is that Sinatra has less of that abstraction, right? So it's easier to explain things like HTTP or what browsers are doing or stuff like that. And then making the jump to Rails is not quite as tough, right? 
Yeah, and I love that. And actually, in terms of, of teaching web applications on Ruby, my favorite progression is going from Rack to Sinatra to Rails, because Rack is really showing you the, the core basic elements of what you're doing in a web application. And you're just writing Ruby. Like, it's very, very basic Ruby that you can write. And from there, you can start to appreciate the elegance of Sinatra, which I, like, I was fortunate to see um, Blake Miserani present one of the early versions of Sinatra at a Ruby meetup. And I just remember looking around the room and people were kind of like, oh, this is cool. And I, my head was exploding. I, yeah. I could not believe what I was seeing and the way that he was making web applications different. And so I think that's a really good point that of, of kind of starting from the ground up really gives you an appreciation for the functionality and the features and the design choices that, that, are, that you're getting when you use a framework like Rack, which is very simple, or Sinatra, um, and then moving on to Rails. Yeah, I think there's a difference between knowing something like you can call this method in Rails called session and it gives you the a hash that you can manipulate and remember things between sessions to actually understanding HTTP and knowing what a cookie is, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so one of the things I, I like too that you said was that was about learning about understanding of Ruby being so helpful because Rails is just Ruby. You know, until you get to all the, the JavaScript stuff, right, and, and the SQL stuff, like, you're dealing with Ruby most of the time. And right. one of my favorite things about Ruby is that it has this, it has this interesting property where, like, you can, you can use it interactively in IRB and just kind of express ideas and get feedback quickly. You can write hideous scripts that just <laughs> get the job done. And you're, you know, you're just shuffling bits around and then you can build these kind of beautiful test driven object oriented things and you object oriented systems and you can kind of go from one to the other, like throw an idea and out, out in IRB, copy it into a script and kind of munge all this stuff together and then wrap that thing in tests and start refactoring. And before you know it, you have kind of a sweet little system. And now you have a better foundation, like you have more functionality that you've created, and you start the process all over again and create another idea in IRB, make your nasty little script using that as a starting point, and then you know that becomes the seed of the next version of the system. Right. I think that's so helpful even in Rails development too, though, because you're, you know, you're writing some web application and then it pretty inevitably comes down to Oh, okay, so now we have to do this thing that's obviously going to have to happen out of the band, right? That can't be part of the the web request cycle. So I'm going to have to do some task, you know, which is back to, you know, I, I, I guess people that come from Rails, they view that as, okay, time to put in, you know, uh, rescue or sidekick or whatever, and then hook in through that way. And that's definitely a way to go. Um, but, you know, like you say, if you have the Ruby experience, you're like, well, I'll write some script or whatever, you know, and get started that way. And, and probably you eventually end up hooking it into some kind of bound ground system or something like that. But just having that, that ability, having that skill that you can fall back on when you have to do something that's not as web-like. You know, I remember one of the first Rails applications I worked on was a pretty complicated 
uh, file sharing application for a very specific industry that had uh, specific requirements for their needs. And so people would upload these files and then we had to display them and, and you know, uh, let people pull down the files they were interested in and maintain metadata on them and stuff like that. And, and that was not really something, you know, Rails does a lot of things for us. Uh, but in the file management area, it's not much. <laughs> you know, there's not even even to this day, it does a few things, but there's there's not a lot going on as far as what Rails can do for you with files. You know, so if you work on that application, you have to know how to move files around on a hard drive or uh, store them in certain ways or copy them or efficiently stream them down to somebody or all those things right we had to do that you know in in rails one two you know way back when so having that knowledge to fall back on gives you a lot more options than having this uh tight you know uh, focus on a certain kind of web applications i think that's great that's great so uh, kind of along those lines you talked about uh kind of master your understanding of Ruby allows you to not get stuck when you're working. And it sounds like that's the, you know, that's something you're dealing with there is relying on your Ruby skills, but also your, your understanding of computers in general to find a solution, even though it might not be the, the most widely adopted solution or the ideal solution long-term it works in that moment. Um, what are, what are some of the, what are some techniques that you use to, not get stuck when you're coding because getting stuck is super common and probably one of the most frustrating things when people are programming. That's a good question. And I, I'm not going to pretend like I don't get stuck. I'm a programmer and like anybody else, I have days when I want to throw the computer out the window, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, everybody gets stuck just at, at different places. Um, I think my instinct, because I came up through, Ruby in the lower level languages is whenever I do get stuck, I try to start backing out of layers of abstraction. So, you know, okay, Rails is not helping me here. What can I do with just Ruby or something like that and see if I can figure it out. And then once I have it figured out, maybe there's a way that I can make it even more elegant by moving back into those uh, layers of abstraction and figuring out how to make it work in that context. But uh, a lot of times, uh, so another example I, I just thought of, um, the other day I had to work on uh, migration in a Rails app that uses UUIDs as the primary key column on the database table. And uh, so then I needed to do a, a batch migration changing the data. And usually I just use find each. Active Record has a find each and it'll iterate over all the records and then you can change them all, right? Over a period of time. And uh, find each does something with the ordering of the IDs. So if you're using a UUID, they're not guaranteed to come out in any specific order, like an auto incrementing integer field would. So you can't use find each, well, not safely anyway. And uh, so that was it, you know, can't use find each the way you usually do it, what are you gonna do? And so um, I just went back to, okay, so this is a series of queries over time, you know, we'll have to order them and, and 
bring them out in chunks, remember where I am, bring out the next chunk. And I, I basically built my own Ruby iterator that worked with the UUIDs, you know, and uh, I think having that, that bit of knowledge to go back to is good. So I, I think my tip would be when you're stuck is try to reduce the overhead in your head. Like everyone has a limit, you know, uh, some programmers may have a higher limit than you, that's great, but we all have our limit. I, there's definitely, uh, you know, a, a level of code that I can no longer keep track of in my head. Um, and so you've got to try to back out as much of that as you can to give yourself some breathing room. So if you can't figure it out in Rails, then just take the smallest part of it or whatever and be like, all right, how would I write a method or a script or whatever that does this one small piece and then try to step up the tree from there, right? If I have this piece, can I get from that piece to that piece and, uh, and work it slowly to where you need it to be? So I would say break it down into pieces, make the smallest thing you can, and reduce those abstractions until you can figure it out. And then once you've written something once, it's way easier to do it a second time in a different way because you actually understand the problem now, right? So then you may be able to go back where you originally had the problem and figure out the right way to do it in that scenario. It's just backing those abstractions out is just a trick for your brain to let you manage more, right? Yeah, I love that because I, I think of, so anytime I see an abstraction or I'm working with an abstraction, whether it's a method, a class, a library, or a whole framework like Rails, the abstraction represents an idea or a set of ideas. And when I get stuck and I'm working on something, it's very easy for me to conflate the big ideas or set of ideas expressed at a high level by the abstraction from the pretty small idea that I'm actually stuck on, which might be something as simple, like I want to print this string out in a particular format, or in my case, it's more likely, I need to figure out this regular expression. And if I'm plugged in, if I'm plugged into the whole framework and I'm dealing with that stuff, there's a lot of moving parts. And if I can step out of that and zoom in on that tiny little problem that I'm actually focused on, I think you're right that, that the first part is understanding the problem. And if you have all that overhead from dealing with abstractions that are, that are around your problem, but that are not actually the problem that you're working on right now, then you can't hold that, or I can't hold that problem in my mind clearly. And if I can't hold it in my mind clearly, I can't understand it. And if I can't understand it, good luck fixing it. Exactly. There was a, a problem I ran into on that early Rails file sharing app where uh, way back then, uh, and, and I think still today, but it's, it's smoother these days, Rails handles file uploads of different sizes differently. And there's some threshold, like if it's under a certain amount size, it just slurps the whole thing in and gives it to you in one kind of object because that's the most efficient way to do it. But if it's over a certain size, then instead it, it, it spools it to the file system and gives you a handle or something like that. It, and this may even be a rackism, I think a, a lower level thing. But uh, anyways, it, there's, there's a difference in handling. And I remember back then 
somebody came to me one day when we were working on that project and said something about, uh, yeah, we have this issue, but it can't be fixed. Rails doesn't handle files of a certain size. And they, they meant the little ones where Rails gave you a different kind of object. So whatever kind of IO manipulations they were trying to do didn't work because it's not actually even on the file system. It's just in some raw string kind of thing or something. And, and that was it. That was the stopping point for that person. Like Rails had failed them. It didn't handle that scenario. So, you know, what are they going to do? Whereas I, I have always had the attitude, and this will probably sound terrible, but Rails will do whatever I tell it to do, right? Which is that because I understand the Ruby that it's using and, and what it's doing there, then, then I will figure out what it's doing and I will tell it what I want it to do with the the information there. And so I looked at that case, realized it was a different object and, you know, to put in two different code paths that, you know, ended up handling the two different things differently. And then we could handle, uh, and then we could handle files of the different sizes. And that this, this isn't a, a morality tale about how I'm smarter or anything like that. What it's about is some people see that this abstraction has failed them and now they're stuck. Whereas other people assume, oh, I'm gonna have to do something else. I'm gonna have to work around that, right? And you want to be in the second camp. Assume there's a solution to the problem. Yeah, what's really interesting to me is in the span of just a few minutes, you have highlighted two really good examples of, of I, leaky abstractions or when, when abstractions kind of hit, uh, hit an edge and, and you get stuck there um, because, so that's an interesting scenario, first of all. Rails can't handle 256 kilobyte files. It can only handle 256 gigabyte files right, for right. our application. Yeah, right. you know? But so you have that where there's a, Rails is doing something automatically under the hood and now you as a programmer, you have to understand that special case and you have to understand that the edge case and write code to handle that. And you talked about the find each with the universal IDs and how find each is implemented specifically in terms of sequential IDs. And so as soon as you use UIDs, it fails. And those are things that, so we already see that the, fi uh, the file system thing tripping somebody up saying, I can't do it, Rails has failed me. And I can totally, I hope, that find each throws an error when you have a UID because otherwise I could just imagine somebody using find each on it and having no idea that it doesn't work the way they expect it to in that particular situation. It doesn't throw an error. <laughs> scary, right? <laughs> that's very, very scary. So yeah. that's like, you know, that's uh, that, that's kind of the there be dragons sort of thing about right libraries and frameworks and, and abstractions in general um, is that they are encapsulating knowledge and if you don't understand the knowledge that that underlies the abstraction then it can come back to bite you and in the case of your database migration it could come back to bite you days weeks or months after you did it when it might be too late to it would be a giant mess you know exactly why did half of this data get changed and the other half didn't right <laughs> And, and wow. even even in the case where I had to figure out the file thing, I, I wish uh, I could go back now and show people how I did that because 
you would probably be surprised at how unsophisticated it was. It was a case of, you know, okay, I tried uploading a big file. It happened. I saw it go through. It did the whole thing. I tried uploading a tiny file and it blew up because it said there was no method, right? So then I started reverting back to trivial basics. Well, obviously this isn't the kind of object I think it is. What kind of object is it? Dot class, right? Let's find out, you know, and then, oh, this is a different kind of object. Let's go see what kind of methods this thing has on it, you know, and what, what can I do to get my data out? How can I shove that data on a file system so I can treat it like everything else? You know, that kind of thing. It was, it was very elementary. It's just, those are the kinds of things you learn when you learn how to program Ruby. How am I going to solve my problems? How am I going to figure out what this object can do? You know, change it into what it is to what I want it to be and stuff. So those skills are, are super valuable to develop no matter what you end up doing with your programming. I, I think, and I think it's important as we talk about this to understand that these cases that we're talking about, it's not that Rails is bad or Rails has failed somebody or the developers who created this are bad or even the person who uses it and gets bit um, is stupid or doesn't, doesn't understand something. It's that creating effective abstractions that stand up to the kind of pressures that that the developers put on them, you know, in all these unique situations, that's really challenging. And you're going to run into scenarios where it doesn't work as you expect. And, and that's an opportunity to learn, but your job as a developer at that point is to fall back on the skills that you have and figure it out and make it work for you. Right. Yeah. That's the, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, you just have to assume there is some kind of solution back out to some level where you can understand it, try to get your head around it, and figure out how to go forward from there. So along those lines, you have a pretty kick-ass video that I watched about a week and a half ago. Uh, it's on your Codalized website, I think it is. Yes. And it covers a lot of this stuff. I, so you, you called it a code reading video. I watched it, and I was like, this is how you debug. <laughs> when people ask how you debug, I'm like, you have a mental model, and the system doesn't represent your mental model at all, and you form hypotheses, and you poke it with a stick, and eventually you start to gain some understanding. Um, I thought it was, uh, it was great to watch and, and learn from you. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of stuff that you cover in that video and how it, how it helps people develop this sort of understanding and figure things out and get themselves unstuck when they run into these sorts of problems? Yeah, so um, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was kind of an experiment, uh, and I wasn't sure, you know, if it if it was going to end up being something valuable. But I think one of the things uh, that the primary motivation for why I did it was um, I've been talking about reading code forever. I've been telling people go out and read code. Go out and read code. It's really good for you. You won't believe how much you you learn from it and stuff. I think I gave a talk on that maybe in 2009 at uh, like Mountain West Ruby or something like that. Um, and uh, and I, I would give these code reading talks all the time. And people would smile and nod. I think they were, you know, largely indulging me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I, I think we all know we're supposed to be reading code and that it's a... Uh, 
a good idea. But what I definitely didn't realize back then, but I do now, is a lot of people have no idea how to read code, or at least not how to read it well, you know, or, or what are you trying to accomplish, or what are you trying to do uh, when you're reading code? And, uh, and I didn't have those ideas in the beginning, and I figured it out by trying all an error, or watching people that are better at it than me do it, and, and now I have a pretty good system, and I'm, I'm pretty efficient at it, mostly. Um, and uh, so I, I, was, I wanted to make a video that lets you skip a whole bunch of those steps, a lot of that pain, right? I wanted to give you a way to figure out what are you supposed to be reading? What are you trying to get it out? Get out of it. How do you do that? You know, and and show you how to skip all those steps. Which um, it was interesting to me when you said it's basically a debugging video because that thought never occurred to me until you said that. Um, but you're right, right? It's like these things we were just talking about about. How do you understand when Rails does something weird that you didn't expect? Well, you fall back on your understanding code principles, right? Which is the same principles that I'm using in the video to understand code. Um, and so uh, in a way, you're right. These are, these are debugging skills and things I've learned for how to make sense out of code. So, so the video, uh, the way I did it is kind of neat in that I pulled down a library I haven't read before, and I recorded myself reading it. And uh, that has interesting properties. For example, I make a couple of assumptions that are wrong, you know, and then I get further along. I'm like, no, that's not what it's doing. Well, what is it really doing? And I have to figure it out, you know, or I get confused a couple of times. I actually considered editing those points out of the video because they're kind of awkward, right? It's like, uh, okay, it's clear he doesn't know what he's doing now, you know, but but I thought you want to leave those in so that people know that's how it goes. That's the process, you know, you get confused, you delay something, figuring something out, you guess, you try something and you're like, oh, that's right or that's wrong. And then you have to backtrack and try again. Uh, so those are those are some of the things I'm trying to get across in that video and help hopefully give people a leg up to uh, learning what's good code to read, uh, what they're, you're trying to get out of it, how you actually go about it. Um, that's, that's what I'm trying to get across. Yeah, that, that was one, that's one thing that I love about it in particular is that you, you are applying the exact skills that you're teaching like in real time and you're showing you're showing it warts and all because I have and there are a ton of videos there, there are a ton of really great videos and tutorials out there super high quality um, where I think they so so they, they optimize though for people's time in that moment I think and, and kind of production value in terms of showing everything pretty perfect and like you said editing out mistakes and stuff and for somebody who's watching them and just just learning, it represents a completely unrealistic picture of, of the world and how software development goes. And unless you really know that, like I think that it, um, I've I've talked to people who feel really bad about their 
their deficiencies as a programmer because they make so many more, more, more mistakes than in the videos. And I'm just like, look, hang out with a programmer who's actually working and you'll see that they make more mistakes than you. It's just that they make them faster than you and they recover from them faster than you. And so taking those skills and, and, and having that confidence to apply the skills that you've learned on a code base that you haven't seen before and show the reality of getting stuck and, and having to backtrack and try again, I think that is incredibly valuable and helpful for anybody who is, is wanting to learn to get better at programming. Yeah, I think that is something that we often uh, think that is not the case. Like, uh, people come up to me and they say, you know, oh, I wish, you know, I, I knew as much as you did or could figure out what you can figure out or whatever. And it's like, oh, you totally can. Like, maybe not as fast as I can, probably because I have enough experience that I just instantly assume I'm wrong, you know, and, and I get over it immediately, you know, like, oh, well, there you go. And I try something else, right? Whereas other people get so upset by it. I think it's Steve Klobnik had this great story about he was pairing with a, a more junior programmer at one point and they got stuck on a problem and worked on it for a little bit. And then when they were done, when they were getting ready to end the pairing session, the junior programmer says, to Steve, he says, oh man, I'm sorry. That must have been a pretty boring day for you, you know, like being stuck on this problem. And Steve's like, what do you think I do for a living? <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> Dude, I, I love that so much because I have a kind of similar experience where people will say like, oh, I, I wish I could write Ruby like you. I wish I could solve problems like you. I wish I could write tests like you. And I'm like, all right, you have two choices. One is to go back in time 10 years and start writing lots of Ruby and see where you end up. And two is to start doing that today and see where you end up. Right. So pick the one that works for you and go from there. And uh, and it's it, it really is that. And the other thing that you said is to assume you're wrong. And um, that is something that I've I've learned a lot from other programmers and has matched my own experience. Is that um, is I don't I don't usually think I'm right. I go, I go. There's a very high likelihood that I'm missing something here, and so then when something's off, it I can attack it from from that place of like, okay, what is the piece that I'm missing, rather than assuming that the thing I did should work, and now there's some inexplicable thing in the system. Because in you know the code base for Ruby pretty solid, code base for Rails pretty solid. You know your right. operating system and text editor pretty solid uh, right. what's, what's probably how thing, you put the pieces together right what's the thing that the junior programmer always thinks when they encounter some unusual scenario it's always oh i found a bug in ruby you know yeah that, yeah, exactly. that may be true but it's not likely right <laughs> not like you know, I've, I've told this story a few times i think but probably not on the podcast so I, I, was I was really fortunate to work with a, a really, really, really talented programmer when I got started early. I'll just say his name, Nick Callen. Uh, he's NK on Twitter, and he helped scale Twitter and, uh, and built Errol, which was the foundation for all the really cool active record stuff that happened. And um, I got to work with him and pair with him all day, every day for about a year and a half. And what always amazed 
amazed me about him was when I would get stuck, I would want to like, I would want to stand up and walk around and breathe. And he, he was like, sit down. What do you think you're going to do you know, when you're not at the computer or at least like at a whiteboard? But the other thing that he would do that really stuck with me was whenever something went wrong and he, it was something different from what he expected, he never, I never saw him get frustrated. He would always just look at the screen and whisper, fascinating, and <laughs> then move on and figure it out. And he must have whispered fascinating a couple hundred times a day. Right. Like it was just this instinctive reaction for him. And he was never frustrated. He was only ever fascinated. And he did some ridiculously amazing stuff with Ruby. Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the big mental tricks is that when you're when you're you know more junior, less experienced, and you you write some code and find out you know one of your initial assumptions was just totally wrong, and and so what you've built doesn't make sense. You're devastated. You know, you're like, oh, I was so mistaken, so wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. Whereas the expert programmer is like, eh, yeah, that's that's typical. <laughs> yeah. Computers hate me, but that's okay. Right. I will, I will work it out. Just another day at the office. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's kind of it. Is after a while, the, my experience and talking with others is like you just reach a point where you realize, oh, it doesn't. Things don't just start working. Like it's always like this, and you either want to keep, you either just accept that and want to keep going, and you're like, okay, I can handle this. You know, as long as it, as long as I know what to expect, that it's pretty much always going to be like this, um, then you can do it. But if you're, you know, if you're like, oh, it's going to be like this forever, then, you know, maybe programming is, is not for you. Yeah, yeah. You definitely have to get to the point where it rolls off of you. You know, you all have those days where you program all day, get to the end, and that's when it sinks in. You totally blew it, you know? And there's two ways to look at it. Oh, I totally wasted a day is, is the one point of view. The other is now I understand the problem. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And that when you're working can be very challenging for me because I like I've gotten to a point where I'm very comfortable like investing my time learning and saying that even if at the end of the day I made no visible progress in my head, I could, like I can feel my brain reconfiguring itself, and I feel confident that I can wake up tomorrow and come back again with with a fresh mind and do a good job. But yeah. then you have a manager or a business person who is looking at it and is like, you didn't do anything today. This I know, was, you know, this was a horrible right? day. Yeah, <laughs> but there was a, um, the peep code videos, if anybody remembers those, um, they used to do some play-by-plays where they'd have people program. And uh, one of the earlier ones was Zed Shaw uh, solving some problem. It was always just some, little problem that uh, Jeffrey Grossenbach gave to them and they would solve it while you watched. It was super cool. It was one of the big inspirations for my video. And um, uh, one of the things I loved about watching Zed work is he would solve the problem down the tree a little bit until he had figured out the thing, until he had basically loaded it into his brain. And then almost instinctually, he would get reset just throwing all his work away. I mean, it was shocking. The first time he saw it, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it just threw all that code away. But then he would actually solve the problem. Like he understood it then, right? And the first 
past was a what the heck am I doing here kind of thing. And of course, that was a non-optimal solution because he was exploring and figuring it out, right? So once he had loaded the thing into his head, that was the important part to him. And then he would just get reset to throw away all that junk. And then he would actually solve the problem. I love that example because that's, that, that is very much what it feels like to me is when you're, when you're stuck and you don't know something and you're, I'm, I'm coding and, and I get something that works. Like I get the right result on the screen where I get a test to pass or something. It's very, very seductive for me to be like, okay, just leave that. And, and I can refactor it later, right? whatever. But the work there was the important work. The real outcome there was not the code that I got in my text editor. It was this new collection of neurons that are firing to express this idea. And it took a lot of work to create this pattern of firing neurons in my brain. And so now I can take a step back like that and say, I'm going to start over again. And now it's easier. And now they can go in a more interesting direction and start to create new ideas. And it's not this slog to just kind of get even the, sh the vague shape of, of this idea and this problem that you're working on. Right. And if, I think moving to that mindset opens new doors for you because so like one, obviously Zed has less attachment to his code than I do because it still shocked me when he would get reset, you know? And um, I think reaching that point is awesome because uh, so going to, you know, a typical work environment, let's say there's some hard bug that nobody's been able to figure out in your Rails app and you finally decided that's it, you're gonna crack this thing. If you don't have attachment to, you know, the value of the code and the real attachment you put on is the information you can load into your head, then one of the things you might try first is probably one of the best. And that's that you might write a simple little script to try to make the bug pop, then use git bisect to go back in time, find out when it popped, and then you will have only one commit of changes that you have to look through. And so instead of you know some giant application, maybe thousands or tens of thousands of lines of code to find the problem, and you'll be down to one commit, right? And it's significantly easier. And then you can throw all your work away. That script doesn't mean anything to you, so you can just toss it away. Because what matters is you found where the bug had to be introduced, and you figured out a way to find that, right? But I think some of us have such a high attachment on the value of code that we might start a, a, a more difficult way, and that's write the test, the failing test, which is fine, you know, and it's good to have a failing test and to see that you, you can make that go green when you fix it. But that may not narrow it down near as much as something like that exploratory get bisect if you're not attached to that and if you're only seeking the knowledge. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And that kind of touches on two discussions that I've been following on Twitter with some interest that I've, I've decided to, to not get into the fray because I don't see myself interacting positively in it at all. <laughs> and the, and the, so the two things are the like less code and I am my code. And I, and I think that those are two separate things. Um, but I would, I would just 
that's what that made me think of as soon as you started saying that. The, um, I, so I saw Avdi wrote a blog post and started talking, um, had a series of tweets about I am my code. And then there's the whole less code movement thing going on. And like I said, I've, been, I've, I've just been watching it. So I kind of want to leave that open to you and let, let you take that where you want to go with it. Okay, so I'm I'm obviously very interested in the less code movement right now because uh, that was actually the title of my video, right? Less code, and um, so I, I'm going to state this, and and you're right that it's been a real uh, controversial topic. So I'm going to do my best to represent both sides, knowing that I'm obviously on one side. So you know my bias upfront. Uh, act accordingly, <laughs> but um, so the less code movement to me is a, a movement about what can we build and do with these libraries and tools and such that are built on smaller amounts of code? And uh, how much can we do with that? And how much can we learn from it? And what can we figure out? And what advantages does it have, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there's, there's a lot to that, obviously, it, it can be uh, taken on many different levels, and you know, uh, we can also talk about what constitutes small. Probably not Rails. Uh, is Sinatra small? Uh, you know, it's smaller, but you know, if you compare it to something like Cuba, maybe not. You know, as small. Uh, things like that. But there's there's a lot of angles to that. But the main controversial point, I think, I think actually almost every programmer agrees with like this this idea of should we figure out what is the minimal amount of machinery that we can use to solve problems and and does that make things interesting or whatever i i don't think any of that is controversial um what seems to be controversial is calling it a less code movement um that's controversial and for good reasons uh, for very good reasons uh, so the, the main concern there is is that we're doing some form of othering, right? Like, I, I use less code. Do you use less code? Because if you don't, you know, well, forget it. Uh, you know, or uh, that some experts, quote unquote, uh, will come in and uh, start giving like less code certification or or whatever, right? We'll try to we'll try to take a hold of the brand and and do something with it. Uh, you know, Agile has definitely had that problem in, in many ways. Um, and so there, there's a concern like that, or, uh, and, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this, like attacking Rails on some less code lines, right? Saying, well, Rails is bad at this because it violates these less code principles. All of that is bad, and we should never do any of that. If you do, I will come to your house and violently rearrange the keys on your keyboard. But <laughs> um, th those are bad. Uh, the good side of the movement, in my opinion, is I, I view it more like the maker movement. Um, makers are about the coolest people. If you haven't got a chance to hang out with them, you seriously have to go do this. Go to your local maker space or whatever. They're getting pretty common in a lot of cities now. I don't even know what all those machines are. There's like everything there looks like a cool way to lose an arm to me. But um, <laughs> there's just so many people doing all these exciting stuff and they just get together and make things. 
And that's the interesting part, um, is that the people who are interested in less code, we we have our hangouts and our our places where we sit and talk with each other and we share articles and we try to learn from each other on what we're doing and we read each other's um, you know, code and stuff because it's small and you can figure it out, right? It's not like a commitment, like I can't just say to somebody, oh, you know, just go read Rails and then you'll get it. It's like, yeah, see you in a year, you know, good luck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, whereas, you know, you can be like, just go read this 50 line library. It shows you how you solve this problem. You can do that like right now, you know, and so you do. Uh, and so that's the good part that I think the good part and the reason it has a name and we share that name is that we're advertising to each other, you know, hey, this is our less code stuff. This is the the things we're interested in. We're trying to figure out ways to build more with less software, with less machinery. We're trying to build these small libraries that we can understand, that we can load into our head the whole thing at the same time. Uh, and and that I think has a lot of value. So um, I, I do like the name, but only when viewed from that context, from this context of look at these awesome things we've built or are building uh, with these ideas of using less uh, and not from a let's separate ourselves from these people or use these ideas to show why these people are wrong or we should rebuild rails and 50 lines of code which is absurd of course <laughs> um so yeah I, I think that's the upside and the downside uh, to it so it sounds to me kind of like it's a, a badge that you're wearing openly to to help spark discussion with people <laughs> on a on a kind of a basic level of shared values and that you're like we you want to talk about code in in terms of how small it is and how and and what that means for readability and understanding as opposed to and not that not that it replaces or is better than than some other value approaches but to say like if i were to apply less code to myself here if i were going to wear the less code badge and Tell me I'm wrong when I'm all done saying all this stuff. But if I were wearing the less code badge, I might say, you know, I really value the intense pragmatism of Rails of just making stuff work. But I kind of value less code more. That's those are the merits that I want to debate on in the context of this discussion. And I value solid for designing object-oriented code. But in the context of this discussion, I'm more interested in in arguing on the merits of the, the terseness of the code and, and kind of how the small number of ideas that are expressed. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think it is. Um, Greg Brown told me this thing. I didn't, I'd never heard of this before. And he just kind of sprung it on me, I, I don't know, a year or so ago. And it, uh, it totally applies here. Have you ever heard of communities of practice versus communities of interest? I know about communities of practice, but I have not heard about it in the context of communities of interest. Okay, so I didn't know this, but a community of interest is like a bunch of people that get together because they share a common interest, right? So they select some label for themselves and they, um, 
they just congregate and uh, if you ask them why are we why are you here they would say because we're all whatevers right whatever they label themselves and that's a community of interest this group of people that gathers because they have a shared interest a community of practice gathers because they're doing something together right so um uh I think the canonical example is like um, a bunch of photographers get together, not all because they're photographers, but they get together so they can go take photographs of a bunch of things, share photographs, look at photographs, critique photographs, or whatever, right? They're doing something together. And there and there's a barrier to membership there. You You can't get into the community of practice just because you like photographs. You have to actually be a photographer and be somebody who's doing stuff and uh, taking pictures and participating, right? So it turns out that these two groups, these two kinds of groups behave totally differently. Um, for example, there tends to be kind of a lot of strife uh, among communities of interest. And that's because uh, they all gather together and they all have this shared interest, but they all have different ideas about how they should go about, you know, uh, sharing that interest or what's important about that interest to them. And so they butt horns on things and they lock horns and, and um, they generally, if you ask them, you know, you know, are you having a good time or whatever, the, it's, the numbers are lower there. Whereas like a community of practice that's doing something together, accomplishing something, you know, uh, creating these things, having this barrier and, and knowing that's okay, that, that they're just working with their people and they're doing it to some end. Um, while they'll run into problems, of course, and they still disagree about how to do things, it, it tends to be just like a much smaller deal and and generally doesn't affect things and if we ask people in those groups you know to rate their satisfaction then it's much higher and the idea is that when you're doing things together with people who like to do the things you're doing then you have a great time and you're having fun and everybody's great and then if you're just you know gathering together because you have this interest and you're uh you know just there to be snarky about people that don't have that interest or whatever that's not as productive or healthy right and either to the internal group or to the outside world so be more a community of practice and less a community of interest in my opinion i really really love that distinction because it makes a lot of sense to me because i especially the part about satisfaction or having a good time because it sounds to me like the community of interest, like you said, they label themselves. The, ag the verb there is to be, right? I am a, like, I am a Denver Broncos fan, right. you know, from my own personal example. And so the more, uh, and as our community defines what that means, the more aligned I am with that vision, the, the better I am and the better I feel. And the less aligned I am with that ideal vision, the, the worse I feel, and now you have battles in there. Whereas if we are gathered around the idea of doing stuff together, then the only real thing that happens over time is we all learn and we get better at doing the thing that we're doing, regardless of how long we've been doing it or how differently we do it. And we can, we can argue over the merits of 
doing something one way versus doing it another. You know, functional programming versus object-oriented programming might be an example. But in the end, we're just doing our work better because we're getting experience and we're sharing ideas with people and getting feedback and trying new things. Right. So, and the question you keep asking yourself in a community of practice is very similar to the question you ask yourself, like we talked about earlier, when you get stuck in programming is, how am I going to get around this, right? And you come together and you solve the problem and you, you move on, right? So this is, this is really, this is getting into something that's very important to me. To really say like, look, all the, all the blogs and tutorials and books and videos and stuff like that, that's, that's cool as a way of, of piquing your interest. But at some point, you have to get past that, and you have to actually do stuff. And I think, and that works for some people. You know, some people, um, there are a lot of people that really want to kind of watch videos all day and, and feel like they're getting better. And I'm, you know, I don't think that works, but it will, but, but my way doesn't work for everybody either. Um, and so that's what I've been focused on building. And so I love, I love kind of hearing this stuff, but what are, but I know that people probably think I'm crazy with the way I go about it. So what are, what are some of the, the good communities of practice that you're familiar with that, that you would recommend to people uh, who are listening and want to get better at Ruby and be around people who are making stuff and are learning in that way and that kind of practice approach rather than the interest? This is a tough question because there was a time, once upon a time in Ruby, when I knew literally the best communities around and uh, because there were so few and I was in all of them. And so I could just tell you, oh, go here and hang out here and you won't believe how much you'll learn just reading the messages or what people type or something like that. Um, but uh, nowadays, because Ruby has had such a giant influx of people and they've scattered to the wind, uh, you know, the, the, the core groups have busted up and kind of scattered into their own subgroups. Now I'm lot, a lot less aware of the various uh, different groups in them. And, and I can't always point you at the best ones. Um, but I would say that from what I've seen, I mean, I follow you on Twitter, obviously. And, um, and from what I've seen, this place is my kind of place, right? I mean, you've got people working together, figuring stuff out, building stuff, making stuff. Um, that's that's it, in my opinion. That's like the gold standard of uh, community. It's like the, the golden age of Ruby that I spoke about earlier when we were all on that one list and we were just figuring things out. I think that's huge. Um, code newbies, the code newbies yes. community from Saran, uh, yet Barak has really done a lot of amazing things lately. Um, they do Twitter chats. They have a Slack channel that I hear about uh, from people. And um, uh, Saran is just uh, a, a very inspiring person. And she's done a great job of uh, putting that community touch on it, getting people to working together. I know they have like hangouts now where they all just get together and try to make something and super cool stuff. Everything I hear coming out of that uh, uh, sounds really neat. Um, so I think that's great. Also, Saran was a huge inspiration in uh, the video I just made. She was the one that got me to start thinking about what are these code reading skills that I have. Um, she got people to start reading code together in groups 
which is awesome. It's like a book club, but for code reading. You should totally try it. Go bug some of your programming friends, get together and read something. And when you find something to read, go read something that's under 100 lines of code because you actually have a chance of understanding that and figuring it out and that that's way more valuable. So, and Saran taught me all of that. So, um, yeah, super cool uh, community there. Um, I know there are a lot of others and I feel bad for all the ones I'm not naming right now. Um, but those are the kinds of things you want to look for. Look for people that are sharing their knowledge, learning together, doing stuff together, you know, um, pairing up and going to work on something or explore something or figure something out. Uh, those are the key signs. Whereas I could name many Ruby communities um, where I don't feel that way. I've tried to get into them, uh, hang out there, answer questions, because obviously I have some Ruby knowledge that is useful to people and I would love to share that with people. But then the environment's just hostile and I spend half my time fighting against the hostile environment, which is considerably less fun, right? So Absolutely. I, and you know, I um so first of all, I love what Saran is doing with CodeNubi. Like CodeNubi is one of my favorite things in in the entire world. And it's just so much fun to watch and, and meet people from there. And um and one of the things you said really struck me was is that um I think it's important that there, there really is no best way and there's no best place. You know, there's the best way that works for you and there's the best place that works for you. And, and it takes some time to find it. And the important thing is not to try and objectively say which is best, but um, I got really great career advice from JB Rainsberger a long time ago, who's given me insane amounts of great advice. But this particular piece was just go where the nice, smart people hang out. And, <laughs> And nice and smart is going to mean something different to, to different people, you know? And so I just tell people, like, find your people. It kind of doesn't matter who it is. You just need to find people that you enjoy spending time with and that you learn from and find your people, whoever they may be. And that is how you're going to get good and have fun and succeed. Right. And then just make sure that you're all doing something together, productive and furthering everybody's knowledge and not comparing your people to their people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So James, uh, I think it's time to wrap up here. Thank you so much. I have really enjoyed talking with you and I can almost, I can guarantee you that I'm going to be asking to have you back again uh, to, to talk more because there's so much stuff that so much more stuff that I want to talk about with you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for letting me come. I appreciate it. All right. And real quick, do you have any uh, final kind of final parting words of wisdom for our listeners out there in Ruby steps nation? Uh, words of wisdom, words of wisdom. Let's see. Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I don't, hmm. I'm trying to think of what is the one thing I wish somebody would tell me. <laughs> and I think it's that, um, that we, Kind of this idea we've been talking about the whole time of, of when you're in the farther down steps on the ladder, you have this idea that those way above you on the ladder are using this vast knowledge or uh, have all these skills that you don't have 
and, and stuff like that. And to some extent, that's partially true. Obviously, they have more experience. But really what it is, is that they're better at filtering what matters um, or, uh, you know, finding a way to think around it, come at it from a different angle or something like that. When, when I'm handling something 10 times as complex as somebody else, it's not because I'm using 10 times the complexity of my brain to figure it out. It's instead I'm using my brain to filter nine of the 10 levels that I don't need to care about right now so that I can figure out the one I do, right? So you, you should, it's uh, more about learning those skills and learning how to understand what you can control and simplifying things so that you can control them. That is more important to leveling up as a programmer than knowing the XYZ algorithm by rote. So I think that's more the knowledge I would aim for. That's awesome, James. That's so beautiful. Um, thank you so much. You have been, uh, thank you so much for the work that you've done over the years. You've been a huge help to me and an inspiration to me and to so many other people in the community. And I'm just really grateful for all the work you do and for taking some time to hang out today with our people. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Wow. What a treat it is to have James on to share his stories and insight. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for spending your time with us here on the Ruby Steps podcast. If you got something out of this episode, I would really love it if you would share it with your friends and coworkers and leave comments and rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Ruby Steps podcast.